if you grabbed a black Bible in the back, um, you'll find this on page 976. It's Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses uh, 1 through 10 is what I'll be reading, and you can just follow along with me. Okay, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. We're on week two of our five solo sermon series, and today we're going to look at the theme of grace alone. Of all the songs that have ever been written and recorded, which one do you think has been recorded the greatest number of times by the greatest number of different artists? The answer is Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace has been recorded more times by more different people than any other song ever written. And my question this morning is simple. Why? Why do people feel compelled to sing this song so many times in so many different ways by so many different people over so many different generations? And I think the answer is because it's amazing. In fact, when grace ceases to be amazing, it ceases to be understood. Because grace, by its very definition, is amazing. The fact that God would treat us in a contra-conditional way is amazing. It was amazing to Martin Luther, one of the reformers that we've heard about over the course of these weeks. When he discovered this gospel of grace, it led to such joy and liberation for him that he wrote, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through the open gates. William Tyndale, another reformer responsible for translating the Bible into the English language, was also gripped by the gospel of grace. He wrote the following, that the gospel makes me merry, glad, and joyful, causing me to sing, dance, and leap for joy. Thomas Bilney found such comfort in the gospel that he wrote the following, 
The gospel is a marvelous comfort and quietness in so much that my bruised bones leap for joy. Going back to Martin Luther, before his conversion, he was a monk in the Roman Catholic Church and had worked very diligently and difficultly to secure salvation by his own achievements. He wrote the following about that pursuit. He said, I was a good monk and kept my order so strictly that I could say that if ever a monk could get to heaven through monastic discipline, I should have entered in. But yet he found the following. He said, my conscience would not give me certainty, but I always double doubted and said, you didn't do that right. You weren't contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. The more I tried to remedy an uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience with human tradition, the more daily I found it more uncertain, weaker, and more troubled. Till at once he discovered the gospel by reading Romans chapter 1, and he discovered that the righteousness of God is not a character trait of God by which he judges us, although that's certainly true, but in Romans 1, the righteousness of God is the gift that he gives to the believing. And he wrote the following. He says, when the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means, for I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I will be also. End quote. And he, he concluded his remarks about grace along the following lines. He said, the love of God, or the grace of God, does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. Rather than seeking its own good, the love of God flows forth and bestows good. Therefore, sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. That's what grace is. In fact, let's give this definition to it. Grace is God's unmerited favor toward and contra-conditional treatment of undeserving sinners, end quote. I want to unpack that statement. Grace is God's unmerited, which means we don't earn it. His favor, that is, his well-pleasing disposition, his heart of love, is not earned. It's not merited. And it's contra-conditional. That is, it's in opposition to what we deserve. Sometimes we speak of God's grace as unconditional, and that's true, but it's actually contra-conditional. God's love is not just something we don't earn, it's something we don't deserve. It's something that, in the face of it, we should be judged and sentenced to eternal damnation and death, but rather, God treats us contra-conditionally. He treats us like we don't deserve, because we are undeserving sinners. Grace is God's unmerited favor toward and contra-conditional treatment of undeserving sinners. So first of all, grace means that it's all about something being good in God, not something being good in us, okay? So grace means that there's something very, very good in God, and grace means that there is nothing good in us deserving of his goodness. And we... There would be hard-pressed to find a, a, a more important passage or a more pivotal passage on that subject than Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 10. It's popular for a reason. 
and you know it well for a reason. It's because here the grace of God is celebrated in salvation in a very powerful and gripping way. You see that grace really is the theme of this text. Paul uses it several times. He says in verse 5, by grace you have been saved. He says it again in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of works, it's the gift of God. So really this The heart of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is the gospel of grace that we're going to think about this morning and pray that as we leave, we will be again refreshed and amazed by the way God treats us. So as we think about this, first point, we want to think through the depths of grace. Because as Thad was praying, he mentioned this in his prayer earlier as we were praying together, says you can't really understand the grace of God unless you understand how undeserving and contra-deserving we actually are of it. Grace can only be properly appreciated in light of our drastic, pervasive sinfulness. And so I want us to spend a few moments thinking about that. How does a diamond shine most brightly when you go and get an engagement ring and they bring it out and when they want to show you the character of the diamond, they put it against the black backdrop. Because it's the darkness of that backdrop that makes the diamond shine most brightly. And so it is with grace. We can only understand the beauty and amazing nature of grace if we understand the black backdrop that it lands on, which is our sinfulness. And Paul pulls no punches. He's not interested in boosting our self-esteem. He's not interested in making us feel good. He is, he is in, in interested in opening up our souls and seeing how much they reek of hell. Because every single one of us are born into this world reeking of hell and deserving of hell because of our union with Adam. And so Paul is going to remind us of who we once were so that we can appreciate who we are now. So let's look at the first three verses and see this black backdrop that grace lands on. Number, number, the first thing we see is that we're dead. We are dead. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So trespasses and sins. Sins is failing to miss the mark, that is, or failing to hit the mark. That is, it's failing to do what God required of us to do. Trespass is going beyond the line of what God told us to do. So we are dead in the fact that we have not only not done what God required of us, but that we have done innumerable times that which he has forbidden. And that is the condition in which we are born and the condition in which we live until we are born again. We are dead. But notice, this deadness is a living deadness. He says in verse 2, in which you once walked. Walking dead. The walking dead. This is who we are. So when you you see the show, think of yourself before Christ. The walking dead. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power. It sounds like we're doing active things here. We're we're walking. We're following. Verse 3, we're living among whom we all once lived. So don't think of dead as physically dead. Think of dead as spiritually dead. We are zombies before we are Christians. We are the walking dead. We are walking around very much active, very much alive, walking, living, following. 
not God. Following ourselves, following the devil, following the passions of our flesh. So we are dead. We're also defiant. We are defiant. Verse 2, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and verse 3, walking or living in the passions of our flesh. We are in bondage to the evil trinity, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're following the course of the world system. We're in bondage and slavery to Satan, the prince of the power of the air. He's working in us in a disobedient way. And then we're carrying out and living in the passions of our sinful nature, of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the body and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we're dead, we're defiant, we're enslaved to the world, the flesh and the devil, and we are doomed in this condition. It says that we are by nature children of wrath, not children of God, children of wrath, children deserving punishment, justice, condemnation for our condition that we willingly walk in. So, This is a terrible, terrible plight. It's a terrible situation. We're dead, we're defiant, we're doomed. Jesus would say that we're spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing by which to offer God that would give Him the incentive to save us. Before we were saved, we're so dead that only God can make us alive. We're so blind that only God can give us sight. We're so sinful that only God can forgive and change us. We're so bad, only God can make us good. We're so lost that only God could save us. We're so helpless that only God could change us. In short, without Jesus, we were sinful, lost, helpless, hopeless, doomed, and damned. Nothing in us is worth saving, even though we are applauded and esteemed by the world, and even though we might have a civic morality to us, that we're not in jail, we're not addicted to drugs, we're not going around breaking laws, we're just living in self-righteous rebellion to God. But we could do nothing to save ourselves. Nothing in 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 that condition wanted to be saved anyway. If God didn't do something to help us, we were in big trouble. And this is the true condition of every man and every woman that's born on planet Earth. It is a desperate condition of being dead, defiant, and doomed. Can you see why we love to sing about grace, but when we really get behind it, it's pretty offensive stuff? Grace is really offensive. (laughs) We think, hey, it's a free gift. I mean, it's all what Christ has done. All we have to be is know ourselves to be completely wretched to get it. That's a hard step for a lot of people to take. We would much rather hold on to a semblance of righteousness and goodness about us than submit to this profile. I mean, who wants to walk around having this on their life resume? Yeah, before Jesus, I was dead, hopeless, sinful, lost, doomed, damned, defiant. That's me. It is us in Christ. We love that resume because it exalts the Savior that we hold to. So that's our condition. But here's the good news about all of that. 
is that grace is available and grace is abundant for people like this. Titus 2 verse 11 says that grace of God is for all people. 1 Timothy 1, 14 and 15 says it's for the worst of sinners, including Paul himself. Grace is abundant. Ephesians 1, 7 says that God saved us according to the riches of his grace. Romans 5 talked about the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. And John chapter 1, verse 16, talking about when our Savior came to the world, said that grace upon grace came through him. And so there is more than enough grace. There is riches, there is abundance, there is grace upon grace in God for the worst of sinners. And that's who we are. We need that sort of grace. So that's our first point, the depths of grace. Secondly, let's talk about the dimensions of grace. We see some of this here unpacked for us in verses 4 through 7. So let's read those again. And we see how grace is what saves us, not our achievements. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So what do we have here? We have a new trinity appearing. Not talking about the trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Talking about three truths that we see emerge. In the first three verses, we've got three truths about ourselves. That we're dead, we're defiant, and we're doomed. But in these verses, we see something else. We see a God who is loving, merciful, and gracious in response to those who are dead, defiant, and doomed. And we see him acting in three ways toward those who are dead, defiant, and doomed. He makes them alive, he raises them up, and he seats them with Christ. This is amazing. The fact that God would be disposed in his heart to love people like us like that is amazing and he looks at those people in those condition people who are rightly deserving of his wrath children of his wrath and he says nope rich in mercy abundance of grace grace upon grace for those people because i love them and i'm going to do something about this condition that they're in i am going to take initiative on their behalf i'm not waiting for them to get undead I'm not waiting for them to become undefiant. I'm not waiting for them to get out from under doom. I'm going to do something, because if I don't, nothing's going to happen. And so he moves in. That's why verse 4 says, but God, because it implies that we wouldn't change it. We like that condition. But God comes being rich in mercy, abundant in love, lavish in grace, and makes us alive, raises us to spiritual life, regenerates us, calls us us to be born again, makes us new creatures, no longer doomed, no longer defiant, no longer dead, brand new, alive to him, willing to follow him, rescued from the snare of the devil, set on a new course of obedience rather than disobedience, and one who no longer carries out the desires of the body but carries out the desires of God. And this is what it means to be made alive. And 
He raises them up, resurrects them to newness of life, and seats us with Christ in the heavenly places. You know where you are right now? You are seated in heaven with Christ because you live in union with him. And everything that happened to Jesus happened to you. You're dead to sin. You're alive to God. You're seated at God's right hand in Christ. So that, verse 7, this is the reason God did all this. It wasn't to put our goodness on display. It was to put Christ's goodness on display. Notice, so that in the coming ages, that is for all eternity, he might show how gracious he is. That's the point of verse 7. God did all of that to put his grace on public display for the whole universe. Look who I save. Look who I love. Look who I'm merciful to. Doesn't that say something great about my grace? Amen. And all of heaven blesses him for it for all eternity. And that's what we will do as well. So grace saves us. That's the point of this passage. It's not our earning. It's not our doing. It's not our working. It's not our achieving. It's not our performing. It is God's doing, God's performing, God's activity by which we are transformed, regenerated, and saved. Grace saves us. It offers us forgiveness of sin and freedom from sin. It rescues us from sin's condemnation and rescues us from sin's control. No one, brothers and sisters, get this, no one will be saved without God's grace. Our salvation depends entirely on it. This is what sola gratia means. You contribute nothing to your own salvation except the deadness, defiance, and doom which made it necessary. That's all we contribute. God wants bad people in heaven. Romans 4, 5. Now to him who does not work, but believes on him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Consider that. God saves people who give up trying to save themselves. Those are the only people he saves. God saves the ungodly while they're still ungodly. And oh, how we can by nature fight against this fact. Many people think God wants good people in heaven. So they spend their lives trying to be good enough to go there when they die. Wrong. God doesn't want good people in heaven. There are no such thing. Jesus said it when the rich young ruler came to him and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God, including you. And that's us as well. God wants bad people in heaven so that by saving bad people, he can demonstrate the greatness of his grace. So grace saves us. Grace is about soli deo gloria. It's about the glory of God alone. It has nothing to do with us and our achievement. If we had something to contribute to it, we have something to boast in. But we don't, and therefore we can't. Second dimension of grace. So grace saves us. You know what? Grace also sanctifies us. It changes us. Titus chapter 2. Would you turn with me there? We're going to look at a few other dimensions of grace outside of Ephesians 2, which help, I think, round out our understanding of all that sola gratia implies. Titus chapter 2, grace not only saves us, but it transforms us. Notice verse 11. For, by the, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So there's grace, showing salvation, bringing salvation. But notice what salvation includes. Verse 12. It includes sanctification. 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In other words, Titus chapter 2, verse 12 rescues us from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It gets us out of that dead, defiant, doomed condition and puts us into this condition of no longer following worldly passions, but renouncing them. No longer living unprincipled, unself-controlled lives of worldliness and sin, but rather living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And it's the grace of God that trains us to do that. Grace teaches us what to leave behind. Grace also teaches us how to live. And grace teaches us where to look. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. So, so many of us can get mixed up on this point. We think God is saying, clean up your act and I'll save you. If you've got re- to renounce your worldly passions, you've got to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life, and then I'll save you. But that's not what Titus said. It said the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation, training people to do that. So the salvation is what caused all that. The, sa- the, 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 the activity of the people, the renouncing of worldly passions and the living of self-controlled lives didn't earn the salvation. The salvation led them to live that way. So, so often we can be mixed up. We can think, clean up your act, then God will save you. Or we think God is saying, I'll clean up your act, and then I'll save you. And both of those are false gospels. God never says such a thing. He says something entirely different. He says, I will save you while you're still dirty, and I'll clean you up. Then I'll clean up your act. So it's not, clean up your act, and I'll save you. Or, God will clean up my act, then he'll save me. It's, I'll save you as you're dirty, and I'll clean you up. While you're still dirty, I'll give you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The miracle of grace is that God saves us before we ever could earn it. And the miracle of grace is that even after he's cleaned us up, we still aren't even in a condition to earn it. So when we come to Christ, we're still dirty, we're still unclean, and not only does he save us, but he gives us, he, and he begins in us an inner process of cleansing that begins to clean us up from the inside out. That's what we sang this morning. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. They got it. Tim Ryder got it. It not only forgives us, it changes us. But he saves us first. And then he begins to clean us up. So grace saves us and grace sanctifies us. Two more dimensions of grace. Grace strengthens us. It strengthens us. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes to Timothy and says, Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And in Hebrews it says it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. What does is, what is this strengthening imply? Well, it implies we have residual weakness, that we still need strength and power from God to live as God requires us. I mean, you might hear that. You you read Titus 2 and you say, okay, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. How easy has that been for you this week? You think you got that licked? 
like, yeah, man, no problem. Just going to go about renouncing sin and pursuing righteousness. That's me. Don't need God for it. No, we need God for it. And that's why he strengthens us in order to live that way. And that's, what, that's, a, that's grace. See, when God saves us by grace and he sanctifies us by grace, he's going a third level above and beyond and securing his sanctifying worth by supplying his strength to us to enable us to pursue holiness. It's grace that enables us to be sanctified. I mean, how dead are we by nature that we need not only after God saves us, but then he sends his spirit into our lives to sanctify us, but even then that spirit has to go on supplying strength to us so that we might be enabled to stand. 2 Corinthians 9.8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 ends with us being created in Christ Jesus for good works. You know what you need to, need to have in order to live a life of good works? The grace of God, the strength of God. That's what 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says. God is able to make all of his grace abound toward us, because we need abounding grace in our lives, Two, so that we will have all sufficiency in all things at all times so that we will abound in every good work. Ask you a question. Under what circumstances and in what condition of your life do you not need the grace of God? There is never a moment that we do not need the grace of God and there is never a moment in which the grace of God will not be available to us to strengthen us and help us and equip us for everything that God has called us to do which includes serving him. The gracious God that we have is a God that has given us gifts of grace to love him and to serve him. Grace, his gifts are distributed by his grace. Grace enables us to serve. Romans chapter 12, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Romans 12, 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Gifts are manifestations of God's grace. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. So grace strengthens us. It enables us to stand, it enables us to serve, and it enables us to live. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. All these, all these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So we've seen the various dimensions of God's grace. We've seen that grace saves us, grace sanctifies us, grace strengthens us. One more dimension before we get to some takeaways here. And that is grace sustains us. Grace sustains us. Would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12? 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If you're in Ephesians, go backward. A couple of chapters and you will see 2 Corinthians 12. And we're going to look at verses 7 through 10. Very familiar passage, but notice that the reason Paul is able to persevere under very, very difficult times is because of the grace of God. So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. 
to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So notice something. God has sent a messenger of Satan to torment his child to keep him from being proud. He's using the devil to accomplish his good work in the life of his child, Paul. So a thorn is given to him, and it's to keep him from being conceited because Paul's seen some pretty, crazy, pretty, pretty incredible stuff. He's gotten some amazing visions that he could write several books on and get a worldwide platform and probably have a, a really, really good Twitter presence. But he's not doing that because he's been called to be low and humble and not exalt himself. So he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, understanding that God has control of this thorn. He's the one who sent it. He's the one who could take it away. But, verse 9, God says, my grace. My grace. The thorn is my grace. The pain is my grace. The call to humility is my grace. The activity of keeping you from being puffed up and proud is my grace. And it's painful and it hurts. And it causes you to pray relentlessly for God to take it away. And God says, nope, I'm gracious. I don't take that away. That, is that in your category of grace? Do you understand grace that way? That when difficult times come into your life, heart-rending, heart-breaking, painful stuff that makes you want to quit on life, it's the grace of God that's making that happen such that you will fall upon him and hold on to him and be like Charles Spurgeon said, I've learned to not despise the wave that kicks me against the rock of ages. And we must not despise it either. Whether it's health or emotions or relationships or financial difficulties or work problems or any number of persecutions or difficulties on account of your faithfulness to Jesus, we must see the grace of God is operative. Notice he says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. I want to put my power on display through your life. Therefore, you need to be weak because it's in those conditions that my perfect power is displayed. And so Paul gets the lesson and he says, great, praise God, glory to you. I will then boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. That's what he wants. More than the removal of the thorn, more than the pain associated with it, he wants the power of Christ on his life. And to get it, he's going to have to keep the thorn. But notice verse 10. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So grace comforts our wounds. It conquers our weaknesses. It enables us to be sustained in the hardest moments of life. That's why grace is amazing. Grace saves us, grace sanctifies us, grace strengthens us, and grace sustains us till the end. Now, let me conclude with a few dynamics of grace. Dynamics of grace. Because grace has a dynamic to it. It produces things. Okay, so let's go back to Ephesians and look at verses 8 through 10. This is what grace produces initially. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. So that's what grace initially produces. It produces faith. 
Faith is a gift of grace. If you believe in Jesus this morning and you're holding to Jesus as your Savior, God gave you that gift. You did not generate it from your dead, doomed, defiant, sinful nature. You were given a gift by grace to believe in Jesus. You were enabled to believe because you received a gift. That's what makes grace so great. And that's why the doctrines of grace are doctrines of grace because they exalt the grace of God. And this is not your own doing. He makes it clear. It's the gift of God. Your faith, your salvation, the grace you received, none of that is of yourself or because you deserved it. It was all because God gave you a gift. Then he bends the nail over, verse 9, not a result of works so that no one may boast. See, God is all about in our salvation kicking out the planks of boasting from under our feet so that when we stand before him, all we have to exalt is his grace and immeasurable kindness toward us. Say, Lord, I don't even know why I'm here. The only reason I know why I'm here is because you're merciful, you're gracious, you're loving, and you're immeasurable, inexpressible, and unbelievable in all of those things. And therefore, I stand here a trophy of your sovereign grace. Put me on your shelf for all eternity so that the nations and the universe and the principalities and powers will know that you are gracious. And then verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created. There's Genesis 1 language. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So grace has a dynamic to it. It gives us faith. It enables us to come into the favor and blessing and salvation of God. And then it begins a process of devoting us to a new life's work. That is, good works, which God has prepared beforehand. Again, he's already out in front of us with his grace, causing us to walk in those things that he's already prepared, no matter how many years of life we have on this earth. They're all ordained by God every single day of them, with grace littered along the trail, that we should walk in them. So there's a dynamic to grace. I want to talk about six quickly, or actually three underneath this whole idea of dynamics, but they each have two components to them. So I want to talk about what does grace produce in us? What is it, how does it change us? How does it begin to transform us? Well, first of all, let's talk about the disciplines of grace. Grace produces in us certain disciplines, certain desires, and among those are desire for prayer, and desire for his word. Grace produces in us those things. For instance, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, grace enables us to approach the throne. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So God opens up his throne wide. It's a gracious opening. He didn't have to do it. He opened it wide, and he said, you know what? My grace is strengthening you. It's going to sustain you, and it's going to do it through my throne by you calling on me and me dispensing grace as a result of that. Also, the word, applying the truth of God's word to our lives is a means of grace to us. Acts chapter 20, verse 32 and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, 
which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So how does this grace of God in sanctification, making us more like Jesus, how does it actually work? It works through prayer and the Word. The Word and prayer are the means by which grace is dispensed to us and strengthens us to do those good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So those, there's a dynamic of grace, the disciplines of grace. The second dynamic is the disposition that grace produces in us. Do you know grace changes our disposition towards people? Listen, if God has changed his disposition toward you, you have to have your disposition changed toward people or you reveal that God has not changed his disposition toward you, right? What am I thinking about here? I'm thinking about, first of all, humility. Humility, a willingness to be overlooked, a willingness to be not praised, not lifted up, not have to be noticed and in the limelight and on your platform and all that stuff, but rather taking the low place, serving people, caring for people without any desire to draw attention to yourself. Notice what James says in James 4, 6. This is what grace does, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, 5, likewise, you who are younger, people like me, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So grace, the, the grace of God should produce in us a profound humility. And the reason that happens is because we realize the depths from which we were saved. We realize what we were. And it's that that produces in us a humility before others. It also causes us to embrace gratitude. We are way, way, way more grateful if we get grace. Way more grateful. We're more humble and we're more grateful. 1 Corinthians 1.4 I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that was given you in Christ Jesus. So we exhibit humility. We embrace gratitude. Those are two dispositions that grace produces as a dynamic in our life. So we've seen word, prayer, humility, gratitude, two more. I want to talk about the demands of grace. The demands of grace. Now, this might sound a little weird. It should a little bit because it's like, what? Grace makes demands? I thought grace was free. I thought grace was no conditions required. I thought grace was uh, non-meritorious. It is. It is. But grace cannot be encountered without changing the recipient of the grace. That's what grace does. When you know you are in trouble with God, big time, laundry list of criminal offenses that is going to keep you in hell for eternity, and God brings you before His court of judgment and pronounces you not only not guilty, but innocent, because of the work of another person on your behalf. If you go out of there and go right back in to your whole life that got you there in the first place, you do not know what it means to be treated with grace. It's a scandal, and it proves that grace has not hit you. It has not encountered you. But no, what, what happens if we truly experience the grace of God? It not only humbles us, it makes us grateful, but it changes 
the way that we can deal with other people. So, for instance, the first thing it does is enable us to forgive graciously. Forgive graciously. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Matthew 6.12, forgive us our debts, Lord, as we forgive our debtors. How many people pray that Lord's Prayer and they're harboring all kinds of bitterness in their heart? And there's all kinds of people they don't want to talk to. And there's all kinds of people they want to avoid. And there's all kinds of people they wish were dead. And they, yet they take that on their lips and they pray that prayer and they're condemning themselves as they do it. They're condemning themselves as someone who has never experienced the forgiving, empowering grace of God. Because here's the deal, brothers and sisters. We can forgive the absolutely inexcusable in other people because God has forgiven the absolutely inexcusable in you. What you have done to God is inexcusable. And what I have done to God is inexcusable. And what people have done to us that may have really hurt us is inexcusable. But you know what? When we realize that we have been treated so graciously and forgiven so much by God, it becomes much easier to extend that grace to another person and forgive them as freely as God forgave them, forgave us. No conditions attached. No penance to be paid, no purgatory to endure. Reinstated into fellowship pronto. And we have to do that. We have to do that. Prove. Prove to each other. Church, prove. We are in a community of sinners. Ever notice this? Church is the only community that got to be a sinner to join. We sign up. We're signing up for a lifetime of offenses against one another. Do you know that? We're a family. How many times are you offended by people in your family? We are going to offend each other. We are going to sin against each other. And you know what? We have a daily privilege to show that we have been treated by grace with, by God. Daily. Prove that God is gracious to you. Prove that you've received the grace of God. Verify it. Confirm it. By your heart disposition to forgive. Freely, repeatedly, unconditionally. Seventy times seven. Ongoing. A disposition, a heart to love, forgive, receive, reinstate others. We must do that. And also, grace compels us to give generously. I'm not talking about money here. Okay, it's easy to go right to money when we talk about giving. But I'm talking about a life of generosity, of openness, of willingness to meet others' needs, of caring about other people's condition, of seeking to serve them in whatever condition they find themselves so that we can love each other. Brothers if, and sisters, if God would give us this grace, which he will, he promises, through his word, through his prayer, th through our prayer and through his word, if we will lean into this and we will press into grace, he will give us the disposition to forgive graciously and give generously in ways that we could not imagine. And it'd be glorious. And it's happened. I see that evidence of grace in you all the time. So it's not like it's not there. I am encouraging you to still more excel. If we can get a hold of this, if we can just forgive graciously and give generously, God will pour his spirit out upon us because that is who he is. 
And sometimes it's those sorts of things, that generosity, that graciousness, which is so tough to sanctify into our lives. But God is working it, and he will produce it. Let me close with this. What does grace do for us? It destroys all of our self-confidence gloriously. It frees us from having to win God's favor. And it enables us to serve God without fear. So let me wrap this up to maybe some of you who are hearing this for the first time or never heard this before or just it hasn't landed on you the way it has this morning. If you find yourself outside the kingdom of God or not sure where you stand with Jesus, let me give you an invitation based upon what we've considered this morning. You have two choices to make. If you want to be saved by your own doing and your own works, have at it. Have at it. Go to Sunday school, get baptized, give your money, live by the golden rule, be a good citizen. Maybe even give some to the United Way and follow the Ten Commandments and do your best every single day that you can. But in the end, you'll have to live with the consequences of that self-righteousness, and it will not be pretty. But if you want to be saved by grace, which is the only way to be saved, then I plead with you this morning to come to Jesus Christ and cling to him alone. As the old hymn said, lay your deadly doing down. Lay your deadly doing down and shift to his doing. You can have faith, you can have grace, or you can have works and performance, but you can't have both. When it comes to, when it comes to our justification before God, faith rules out works and works rules out faith. God will save anyone who know themselves to be unqualified of his grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So we must believe that he's the only savior that God has given to the world. He came from heaven for you. He died on the cross to pay the price for your sins. He rose on the third day as vindication that his payment was received. He's ready to forgive our sins. He wants to give you his perfect righteousness. And God has said all these things about his son. Have you said to him, I need all that. I need all that. I believe, Lord, I, that's, that's my only hope. And when you get to heaven, you will discover that what you always believed turned out to be true. You will discover that God was as good as he said he was. And God is as gracious as he says he is. There's nothing good in us, but there's something good in God. And that, brothers and sisters, is our only hope of heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time together in your word this morning. Really, with the opportunity to spend time thinking about the most amazing thing in the world, which is your grace toward us, the ill-deserving and undeserving. So as we rise to our feet now, respond in giving and singing, would you draw near to us and amaze us by your grace afresh. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's